Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 39, Leviticus chapter 25, The Conclusion. Well, we're going to finish up Leviticus 25 today. And in Leviticus 25, we studied the all-important Jubilee, which has the nickname in the Bible of the favorable year of the Lord. Now, I've been asked several questions about the Jubilee and just how faithful and scrupulous Israel might have been in actually following it. And in reality, there is no biblical record to indicate that Israel celebrated a Jubilee. Outside the Bible, the Talmud has a great deal of tradition that was developed concerning the Jubilee. And it's apparent that Jubilee years were observed to varying degrees, but there's equally no evidence or record that they were ever observed very scrupulously. Now, instead, what we find are rabbinical rulings over exactly where the Jubilee laws should be enforced. In other words, how, how far north, south, east, west from Jerusalem should the Israelite land be considered to be under these Jubilee regulations. And then later, upon the first exile from the land, that question became all the more important because the Hebrew people needed to know if those Jubilee rulings followed them outside the land of Israel. And the rabbis and the sages kind of divided the Jubilee into two primary areas of concern to determine the answer. One area concerned the land itself and the other concerned monetary debts. And this is because the principle of release inherent to the Jubilee was, of course, quite a thorny issue that the poor folks wanted to be applied and the richer folks would just as soon try to find a way around. And, and the Jewish religious authorities ruled that matters directly concerning land were restricted only to the Holy Lands, while monetary matters followed the diaspora wherever they went. Other rabbis and sages disputed that and said that the Jubilee laws applied only in Israel proper. Now, while I can't say with certainty how to apply all of these many Jubilee rulings to our lives, I can say that the scriptures are very specific that the land involved in the Jubilee is the land that God gave to Israel. So I agree with those rabbis who say it only involves Israel proper. That means, believers, that you don't have to give back the land you bought from somebody every Jubilee year. But it also means you can't have your mortgage canceled when Jubilee comes around. But the God principles that undergird that Jubilee remain. Farmers will attest, I think, that giving the land a complete rest every seventh year is pretty good for it. Although the requirement of the every seventh year Sabbath doesn't really apply to land outside of what was one time Canaan. And Leviticus is, uh, Leviticus is quite clear on this. Okay. The principle of release from debt and slavery is at the core of Jubilee. And we find 
that the work of the Messiah as spoken in the Old Testament prophecies and the New Testament records of the Messiah's coming is at the heart of what he accomplished. And another one of those jubilee principles involves the Israelites never selling their land permanently, not only to someone outside each, each family's own tribe, but outside their nation. Now, of course, this is exactly, unfortunately, what we see being forced upon Israel today by the United States and other governments and being embraced, unfortunately, by the current Israeli regime. Now, I, I shudder at what's in store for us and for them as the Lord dispenses his justice for rebelling against him in, in, in such a sensitive and important matter. Well, let's stop for a moment and just kind of reread a little bit of Leviticus 25 as we finish it up tonight. I'm going to read from verses 44 to the end. Leviticus 25, 44 to the end, page 140, if you have the complete Jewish Bible. It says this, Concerning the men and women you have as slaves, you are to buy men and women slaves from the nations surrounding you. You may also buy the children of foreigners living with you and members of the family born in your land. You may own these. You may also even bequeath them to your children to own. From these groups you may take slaves forever, but as far as your brothers, the people of Israel, are concerned, you're not to treat each other harshly. If a foreigner living with you has grown rich and a member of your people has become poor and sells himself to this foreigner living with you or to a member of that foreigner's family, he may be redeemed after he's been sold. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him or any near relative of his may redeem him or if he becomes rich, he can redeem himself. He will calculate with the person who bought him the time from the year he sold himself to the year of the jubilee and the amount to be paid will be according to the number of years and his time at an employee's wage if many years remain from the amount uh, I'm sorry if many years remain according to them will he refund the amount of his redemption from the amount he was bought for if there remain only a few years until the, until the year of Yovel jubilee then he will calculate with him According to his years, will he refund the amount for his redemption? He will be like a worker hired year by year. You will see to it that he's not treated harshly. If he has not been redeemed by any of these procedures, nevertheless, he will go free in the year of Jubilee. He and his children with him. For to me, the people of Israel are slaves. They're my slaves, whom I bought out of the land of Egypt. I'm Adonai, your God. After Jubilee, last time, the last couple of times, we began discussing this principle of the kinsman redeemer. And I told you that nowhere in the New Testament is the term kinsman redeemer actually found or used to apply to Yeshua. Rather, the term is always abbreviated to just redeemer. And the New Testament assumes that we already know the nuances about these sorts of things, like what a kinsman redeemer is. Now, let me be clear. Yes, of course, Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. The point is 
that like so many subjects, it's in the Torah where we find the explanation for the duties and the qualities of a kinsman redeemer. We won't find that in the New Testament. And we found that in accordance with the law of Moses, Yeshua indeed qualified as the kinsman redeemer by A, being a kinsman, and B, having the means to pay off the debt. And that means was his perfect life. Now, that's all well and good. But just who are Jesus' kinsmen? On a physical, national level, there's only one possible answer. His kinsmen are Israelites. Period. Yeshua's physical people and the physical nation and culture that he identified himself with were the Hebrew people. He never made himself out to be some kind of universal man. He was not some strange, generic mutation of a person who represented all humans. He was a dark, olive-skinned, Semitic man born to a fully Jewish mother. We have Miriam's, Mary's genealogy to prove it. The laws Yeshua followed were Jewish laws. The traditions he followed were Jewish traditions. The God he worshipped was the Jewish God. Jesus, from a human, physical standpoint, was about as Jewish as you get. Okay, So, who were Jesus' kinsmen? Jews. Or more accurately, Israelites. His kinsmen were those set apart for God people. Now, if indeed Yeshua is a kinsman redeemer, then on a physical level, he can only redeem his kinsmen, Israelites. Otherwise, he's not a kinsman redeemer at all. He's a universal redeemer. Now, did Jesus save all humans universally without exception or distinction? Now, it's been common to say, oh, sure, and isn't that wonderful? But scripturally, not doctrinally, the answer clearly is no. He saved only those who trust in him. You have to trust in him. Now remember that Leviticus 25 makes it clear that the kinsman redeemer cannot redeem a foreigner. We've read this and read this. He can't redeem a foreigner. The definition of a foreigner is a non Israelite throughout the Bible. I don't care if it's in the New Testament. It's still the same definition. Now stay with me. I don't want you to jump to conclusions. Okay. Let me say it again. No foreigner is even eligible for redemption. Okay. Listen again to Leviticus 25.44. As for your male and female slaves whom you may have, you may acquire male and female slaves from the pagan nations that are around you. Then too, it is out of the sons of the sojourners who live as aliens among you that you can have acquisition. And out of their families who are with you, whom they will have produced in your land, they can become your possession. You may even bequeath them to your sons after you, and they can receive them as possession. You can use them as permanent slaves. But, in respect to your countrymen, the sons of Israel, 
you shall not rule with severity over one another. Let me say it again. A foreigner, one who is not part of the nation of Israel, is not eligible for redemption. Leviticus 25 also says that an alien who lives with Israel isn't eligible. What's the definition of an alien living with, with Israel? Someone who lives with Israel, but not as Israel. Israel had lots of people who lived among them. And they enjoyed all the economic and security benefits that resulted from God pouring out his blessings on his people. Which, by the way, is why they chose to live with them in the first place. But redemption wasn't for them. Yeshua could only redeem his kinsmen, and his kinsmen are only those who identified with Israel. Now, before some of you go running out the door screaming heretic, just let me finish. From the time Yehovah separated one man apart from all other men on the face of the earth, that was Abraham, to start a whole new line of people for God, a provision was made that any human from any nation could be joined to Israel under full citizenship. But those persons had requirements placed upon them. They had to give up their false gods and they had to give up their allegiance to their former nation and worship only the God of Israel. And they had to follow the laws of Hebrew society. In other words, they had to live under the provisions of the covenants that God had made with Abraham and his descendants. Foreigners became God's covenant people only by accepting God's covenants. When they accepted God's covenants, then they became eligible for redemption, just like all the Israelites. Listen, what made an Israelite an Israelite was not necessarily their bloodline or their genealogy. It was their acceptance of Jehovah as their Lord. It was their acceptance of his covenants as their constitution. That's what made them Israelites. It's always been that way. It's been that way since Abraham. The covenant of Yeshua, the covenant of Jesus Christ, which we call the new covenant, is just the crowning glory in a series of covenants God made with Israel. He told us of the need and purpose and characteristics of the new covenant, which is really but a renewal of the original covenant, in the Old Testament. The New Testament simply identifies who that Messiah is. It tells us how that Messiah went about fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies about himself. And it explains what his advent means for mankind. All the covenants, except for Noah's of course, beginning with Abraham, were made with the Hebrews. There is no such thing as a Gentile covenant with God. It doesn't exist. Rather, as Paul so eloquently explains in Romans 11, it's necessary for Gentiles, foreigners, 
to be grafted into Israel so that we can be under Israel's covenants and thereby we're no longer foreigners. Only by being under Israel's covenants can we qualify as kinsmen of Jesus and therefore be eligible to be redeemed by our messianic kinsman redeemer. Now just as all the laws and principles of Torah were physical demonstrations of spiritual principles so then it is that with the advent of Yeshua the Messiah that Gentiles do not have to become physical Israelites as did foreigners of old this was by means of allegiance to the nation of Israel and then a physical circumcision ceremony rather it was now by faith which is an act of the Spirit. By faith in Yeshua HaMashiach, we join Israel on a spiritual level. It is by means, Paul says, of a circumcised heart. That's the sign of our faith. It's by means of a circumcised heart that we join spiritual Israel. And and what is Israel on a spiritual level? It's the perfect heavenly ideal of God's set-apart people who embody all the spiritual principles of Torah. In fact, Paul goes on to say that simply being a Jew, a Hebrew, by birth, by blood, is not enough to be part of God's kingdom and his eternal set-apart people. Certainly the physical, fleshly reality of Jewishness can never be taken from the Jewish people. And it brings with it certain advantages and honors. But physical Jewishness is not the requirement for a permanent relationship with the God of the universe or for redemption by a Messiah, our kinsman redeemer. Rather, it is the spiritual reality of Jewishness, the fullest reality reality of God's covenants, culminating in God becoming flesh and giving up his own life as the redemption price so that we can have that relationship with the Lord. So, how is it that Jesus the Jew can be the kinsman redeemer of one who's born outside of Israel? One who's not his Israelite kinsman? He can't. One must be joined to Israel, which we are when we come to trust in him. Trust in him. Again, not on a physical level, on a spiritual level. Turn to Romans 11. We're going to keep reviewing this chapter until the depth and the familiarity of this key section of the Bible becomes like a very comfortable old friend. I want to start reading at verse 13 for the sake of time. 14.15 in the complete Jewish Bible. Romans 11 starting at verse 13. However, to those of you who are Gentiles Gentiles? Any Gentiles here? Okay. That's good. However, to those of you who are Gentiles I'm saying this. 
Since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I can provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if they're casting Yeshua aside, means reconciliation for the world. What will their accepting him mean? It'll be life from the dead. Now if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, then so are the branches. But if some of those branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and had become equal shares in the rich root of that olive tree, then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you're not supporting that root. That root's supporting you. So you'll say, branches were broken off so that I can be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. But you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified because if God did not spare the natural branches, he's not going to spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off, but on the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they don't persist in their lack of trust, will be grafted in because God is able to graft them back in. Because if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree, and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will those natural branches be grafted back in to their own olive tree? Now this olive tree is a standard biblical metaphor for Israel. And Paul makes it clear that those of us who were born as foreigners, Gentiles, must be grafted into the Israelite olive tree. We have to be removed from our former roots as wild olive trees, he calls us, the pagan Gentile world, and we're told that this Israel olive tree, this cultivated olive tree, has some branches that have been torn off. Israel has some of its members that have been torn off, removed. And those torn off branches are those Israelites that refuse to believe in the kinsman redeemer that God sent for them. Those of us born as Gentiles, as foreigners, who must be grafted into that Israel olive tree, a tree is not, not natural for us. It's against nature. If we want to partake of Israel's covenants, we have to be grafted into their tree. Those who are born as Jews are native to that olive tree. But in order to remain attached, Paul says they must remain true to God's covenants. All of them. Including the revelation of the Messiah. Therefore, for Jew or Gentile to be part, let me say that again, for Jew or Gentile to be part of the Israelite olive tree since the advent of Yeshua, the highest and true ideal of Israel is what we're talking about here on the spiritual level we must all accept the Messiah that God has sent us I mean do you get it 
Jesus is a kinsman redeemer because he redeems kinsmen. By means of faith in him, we're grafted into his family. The Israelites. We therefore become his kinsmen so he can redeem us. I can't tell you that there's some kind of little funny order that goes on here. Alright, today I trust, so tomorrow I'm grafted into the tree, and the next day I'm redeemed. No, no, no. This this happens instantaneously. I can't I mean, this is a spiritual thing. Alright? There's no time. Not one, two, three, four, five. By means of trust in Christ, we're grafted into his family. Otherwise, we just remain as foreign Gentiles. Even aliens living among the Hebrews, but we're not his kinsmen, and therefore we're just not eligible to have a kinsman redeemer. So as the kinsman redeemer who buys the freedom of another, or affects the release of another of his family, so does Yeshua buy our freedom. He affects our release from bondage. From bondage to sin and that debt to God that we owe for that sin. And as the kinsman redeemer of Leviticus, he redeems by means of a personal sacrifice of sorts. That is, he pays the price, a kinsman redeemer pays the price for nothing he's caused, and the person in debt gets all the benefit. So it is that Jesus pays the price by means of his personal sacrifice on our behalf, and we get all the benefit. But there's another side to this. There is the Goel Hadam. That function of a kinsman redeemer that we call the blood avenger. When we look at the end of time, when Yeshua comes to defeat the devil and overcome evil, he comes as the blood avenger, the Goel Hadam. The first time he came, he came as just the Goel, the kinsman redeemer that pays the price for redemption. Redemption. That function is complete. It doesn't have to be accomplished again. When he comes next, Messiah comes as the Goel Hadam, the blood avenger of his kinsmen. Jesus, our blood avenger, will bind up the evil one for destruction. Those who fought against and persecuted and killed God's people will now have their blood spilled. And he's the one who will do the blood spilling. Those who have already died in their sin will now have their eternal blood spilled, so to speak. Those who are present at Haramagido, Armageddon, to fight against Yeshua will first have their physical blood spilled, then their eternal blood. This is the day the Lord has promised, the day he avenges. The great and terrible day of the Lord, the day Jesus Christ, the kinsman redeemer, comes back as the Goel Hadam, the blood avenger of his kinsmen. Well, so much for a meek and mild savior, it wouldn't hurt a fly. Okay. Revelation 19.1 
After these things I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bond servants upon her. Now I've spoken before about how there are two natures of Messiah that will manifest itself. The suffering servant and the mighty warrior king. The Jews speak of this in terms of Messiah ben Yosef, the suffering servant, and Messiah ben David, the mighty warrior king. Most Jews do not accept Messiah, or rather Yeshua is Messiah at least partly because he didn't manifest his warrior king nature when he was here on earth and that was the side of Messiah they really wanted. But particularly among the learned rabbis there was yet another reason for their denial of him. They saw only the blood avenger side of a kinsman redeemer as important for their purposes. That is, by the time of Jesus, the era of Jesus, the principles and laws of the kinsman redeemer had been reduced to primarily being those of the Guel Hadam, of a blood avenger. It was no longer deemed an obligation for a kinsman to redeem a family member from slavery or from loss of land. These laws of Leviticus 25 had kind of been twisted and turned until the primary purpose for a kinsman redeemer had evolved from being a duty into holding a right of first refusal. In other words, redemption by Jesus' day was considered completely optional upon a close family member. And often that redeeming process simply meant that a wealthy relative had the right of first refusal to acquire a piece of land from a poor relative who had lost it. The process had moved from being a sacrifice on the part of the Redeemer to a blessing for the Redeemer. A blessing of acquisition and then profit. So the Redeemer took ownership of that piece of land. It didn't go back to that poor relative who lost it as the law required. In other words, it had become like our modern concept of acquiring a piece of foreclosed property on the courthouse steps right, and keeping it as our own for our own benefit. Now, the only reason that blood vengeance didn't happen regularly in Christ's day is because the Romans had outlawed it. Right. Nonetheless, it did happen from time to time anyway among the Hebrews. So, one of the theological reasons that some rabbis will use to explain that Yeshua cannot possibly be the Messiah is that he did not behave as a blood avenger. Right. And they're right. But just as Yeshua did not characterize Messiah Ben David, the warrior king, on his first coming, but he will on his second. 
So he did not characterize the attribute of the blood avenger on the first his first coming, but he will on his second. Revelation 6.9 And when he broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of, the God, uh, word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, wilt thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe and they were told that they should rest a little while longer till the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed also. Yeshua is our kinsman redeemer because by trusting in him we become his kinsman. He is our blood avenger and the blood of God's enemy is going to flow as high as the bridle of a horse in the valley of Armageddon and it's going to be Jesus leading the charge. Well, that finishes up Leviticus 25. And we're about to enter the final two chapters of Leviticus. Now, we're going to move through these final two pretty rapidly. So, I want to review a little bit and get some important principles settled in our minds that that, that we've learned from the book of the priests of Israel. The book of Leviticus. And we have hopefully begun to realize in our study of Torah with its rules and ordinances, the biblical feasts, the sacrificial system that Jesus came to fulfill it all not to abolish it or bring it to an end. He came to take all the ideal spiritual principles that that the law demonstrated in a manner that men could understand. They could comprehend through visible means in the form of colorful rituals and these appointed times and national celebrations through the Sabbath rest, through the building of a beautiful tabernacle and then a magnificent temple. He would eventually bring these physical representations to their ultimate divine purpose. Now what's so key to understand and frankly is virtually opposite what has been taught as a foundational doctrine of the Gentile church is that Jesus did not come to do away with the Torah and all the principles and the prophecies it contained. He did not destroy the Torah and then start all over again with a whole new set of principles and commandments and just so no one would misread what he was doing as our Messiah, he directly stated that in in Matthew 5, 17 through 19 which is a section of the Sermon on the Mount that everybody in here ought to memorize. Refer to it often. Show it to your pastors, your friends, who still want to say the law is dead and gone. Let me remind you what it says. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until the heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not not a stroke shall pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. It was the highest meaning and intent of each of the prophecies and laws that he was bringing to light. Now, please think on that for a second. As simplistic as that statement is, as often as I've repeated it, 
Sometimes the enormity of it just doesn't quite penetrate our minds. Everything in the Torah and the Prophets was like a blueprint of God's plan. An overall picture was sketched and how each piece of that plan was to look and to operate was spelled out. Every material, every dimension, every instruction and ritual was where each piece of his plan for the kingdom of God fit together. It was precise. It was critical. Now let me, let me illustrate this for you. Imagine you went out and bought a nice lot. And you went to a home builder, you drew up some plans and blueprints, and you, con- you contracted that builder to build your house. You went away. You came back six months later, and there in, on your lot indeed was a house. But it didn't look much like the blueprints. You confront your builder, and you ask him, What have you done? I asked for a metal roof. There's asphalt shingles up there. I asked the house to be built from concrete blocks. You made it out of wood. I told you I wanted carpeted floors. You gave me, gave me laminated flooring. I asked for a two-story house. This is a one-story house. I said I wanted 3,000 square feet. This one's only two. It was supposed to have a double garage. Instead, it's got a double carport. And his response is, well, yes, but you wanted four bedrooms. You got four. You wanted three bathrooms. You got three. You said you wanted a living room and a den. You got that. So what's the problem? All the rest is just just details. The problem, of course, was that the builder didn't follow the plan. What you wound up with was substantially different than the blueprint. It was a house, but it sure wasn't the house. So let's take that illustration a little further. Because you're so unhappy with it, you don't accept it. The builder gets stuck with it and he puts it up for sale hoping to sell it to somebody else. A bunch of people come along finally somebody buys it. They don't have a problem with the house. Looks good to them. In fact, they see it as a bargain. They think it fits their needs wonderfully. So they move in just as it is. They live there. They're completely satisfied. Of course, what they don't know is that what they bought was just a shadow of what was it originally intended. The house they live in wasn't according to those original blueprints. Since they had never even seen the original blueprints of the house they now owned and lived in, seemed fine to them. Hey, it seemed to function okay. Had enough bedrooms, bathrooms. They're pretty happy. What they'll never know unless they hear about those original blueprints and then go look at them is how glorious and wonderful that house was meant to be. That what they had accepted for their house only partially resembled or even lived up to what had been planned. But it was familiar, it was comfortable, and even if given the opportunity to see those original plans, they probably wouldn't have wanted to because it would have troubled them. It's somewhat like that when we study the life of Messiah and the coming kingdom of God in the New Testament before we study the beginning of all things. The laws and the principles of the Lord. The prophecies of Messiah's coming. 
what the kingdom of God is destined to look like. And it's all contained in the Old Testament. The blueprints for the kingdom are found in the Torah and the prophets. The issue for the New Testament church is it doesn't have all the information. It's perfectly satisfied with what it has without understanding there's a lot more to it. Because not only have most not read the original blueprints, many of our leaders tell us it would be a bad thing to do. To read those original blueprints is just going to confuse us. It's going to make us dissatisfied. It might even pull us away from the faith. In fact, some will say that the divine architect threw those original blueprints away, devised a whole new set of plans, so it's really just a waste of time anyway. We should just accept how the house looks from the outside and move right in. See, one of the difficult issues the church has struggled with practically since its inception, yet the Bible clearly states it, is that the redemption of the Gentile world is dependent on the Hebrew world. Listen to what Jesus said as he talks to the Samaritan woman by the well. In John 14, rather John 4.19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You, show, you worship that which you don't know. We worship that which we know because salvation is from the Jews. Salvation is inextricably, it is organically connected to the Hebrews. I have stated that there is no such thing as a biblical covenant between God and the Gentiles. It doesn't exist. There is no such thing as a Gentile covenant. Every covenant ever made between God and man, starting with Abraham, was made between God and the Hebrews. That's not the same thing as God making provisions to bring Gentiles into the fold of Israel's covenants. Making a way for Gentiles to share in the Hebrews' covenants began with Abraham. Not as a separate covenant for Gentiles, but as part of the Israelite covenants. Abraham was told that is one of the provisions, if you recall, of the Abrahamic covenant, all the nations of the world would be blessed by and through him. That necessarily means that somehow, at some time, Gentiles would have the opportunity to be included. But that this blessing must and will only occur by means of Abraham and his descendants, the Hebrews. That's it. And as a demonstration of how the blessings of Gentile, or the, rather the blessing of Gentiles would eventually occur, of what it would look like, a means of taking a Gentile foreigner into Israel in biblical times and their becoming a physical member of Israel was announced to Abraham by God. It was that these foreigners would only have to renounce their false gods, accept the God of Israel, and live by the community rules and regulations of the Hebrews. Eventually, that came to be 
the laws handed down to, to Moses on Mount Sinai. And of course, it was at Sinai later on that it was all refined. The ritual of male circumcision as a requirement for a foreigner to become part of Hebrew was included. Community rules and regulations set down so that while the newcomer or outsider begins life as a foreigner, if he desires to be part of Israel, and if he accepts the Hebrew covenant, then he's no longer a foreigner. He's an Israelite, operating under the blessings and the curses of the covenants God made with Israel. The designation of foreigner just doesn't apply to him anymore. Paul in Romans 11 made it clear that that same principle remains in full operation, even under the blood of Messiah. Just as male circumcision of the flesh was added as a physical requirement at Sinai, faith and trust in the Hebrew Messiah was added as a spiritual requirement under the newest covenant. With the advent of Yeshua, God's set-apart people began to take on this higher and fuller spiritual essence. Even more, the prophetic blessing presented as a promise to Abraham that the nations of the world would be best blessed by him became fulfilled. Yet all of this takes place under the provisions of the covenants given to Israel. Not outside of them. A kinsman redeemer is an office created under the covenants given to Israel. It's only valid under those laws of Israel. Found in the Torah. It's not found outside of them. We can't go around just making up rules and ordinances for the kinsman redeemer because it fits our purposes and agendas. That's what we've done. So here's the bottom line. Did Jesus reverse the Torah provisions of the Israelite kinsman redeemer by leaving his Israelite roots behind, going outside of the Israelite covenants, creating new rules and becoming a Gentile kinsman redeemer. With Israel no longer being his kinsmen, and instead Gentiles are now his kinsmen. Or did he follow the Torah provisions of the Israelite kinsman redeemer by remaining an Israelite, and in doing so making a way for and welcoming Gentiles into his Israelite family, so he could redeem them. Paul answers that question rather straightforwardly in Romans 11, and we've already read it. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them, and became a partaker with them of that rich root, don't be arrogant towards those branches. But if you're arrogant, remember, it's not you who supports that root. It's the root that supports you. Romans 11.24 For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more shall those who are the natural branches be grafted back in to their own olive tree? See, the requirement is that we must join Jesus' family. He doesn't join ours. The earth didn't orbit around the sun in the Old Testament, and now in the New Testament, the sun orbits around the earth. 
Okay, understand one final time as we close tonight. This is a spiritual matter, not a physical matter. Gentiles don't become physical Jews when we accept Yeshua. Nor do Jews become physical Gentiles when they accept uh, Messiah Yeshua. Further, even if 99% of those who trust Yeshua for salvation don't even know they've been grafted into Israel's covenants, they're still saved. But how much more we begin to understand, how much more useful we can be in the Father's hand when we open ourselves to that wonderful truth. We'll take up Leviticus 26 next week.